morning. Our reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, which you'll find on page 1234 in the Pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we see it, let's bow our heads for a prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, written all those years ago, inspired by your Holy Spirit. And now we dare to pray that that same Holy Spirit would enable this, your word, to speak afresh into our hearts and lives today. For Jesus' sake, amen. Having been... um, an ordained minister in the Church of England for over 30 years. My wife Liz and I have never till recently thought about buying a house. Um, And recently we've been um, looking at right move as though we're obsessed by it uh, and asking the question, um, what happens when I stop being paid for what I do within the Church of England? And um, I think I'm right in saying there is one little mantra that you need to remember when you're looking for a house and that is location, location, location. Uh, And with that in mind, when Jonathan asked me to speak on this particular passage this morning, I couldn't help, therefore, noting that the business of location is at the heart of the message to the church in Pergamum. Verse 13, I know where you live. Uh, And what's interesting is that's by marked contrast with what is said to the church in Ephesus, which is, I know your deeds. It's by marked contrast with what is said to Smyrna, which you're going to hear about next week. I know your afflictions. There is something about where the church lives that is significant in terms of what the Lord wants to say to his church. Well, what do we know about Pergamum, this particular place? Well, we know that it was the seat of Roman government in that bit of the empire in Turkey, Greece. We know that it was a very distinguished city in terms of its reputation, And one of the writers of the time, Pliny, makes reference to that. We know that, fascinatingly, it had a library of 200,000 scrolls, which really was a wonder um, in the ancient world. But it's none of those that is specifically identified or picked out in this letter. No, what we're told about location in this letter is there in verse 13. This is where Satan's throne is. Or verse 14, this is where Satan lives. 
And the Bible scholars have asked themselves, what, what, what's behind that? Why is it that that um, is identified or picked out? And some have said, well, it's because it was Pergamum that had a temple for the worship of Roman emperors, something that developed during um, the empire. Uh, interesting enough, the guy Antipas, who's mentioned in the passage um, we've just heard um, read, um, he was martyred because he refused to bow down and to worship the emperor um, as God. Uh, other scholars have said it's because the whole cultural life of the city was dominated by Roman and Greek and pagan temple life. Others have said um, because this particular city um, claimed um, to be the, the dwelling place of a god known as Esclepios, who apparently was able to heal, and the symbol that was used to reference him was a serpent. And of course, the moment we mention the word serpent, there are resonances for Christians with Genesis um, and um, the presence of Satan. And, and all of this, as far as the Bible scholars are concerned, um, adds up um, to a message that's going to run something like this. You guys live in a place where there is enormous pressure to join in with pagan practices, to worship idols, to support an understanding of life that is alien to the teaching you've received, to tolerate the kinds of things that you shouldn't tolerate. And in the letter, we have specific reference to Balaam and the Nicolaitans, as it were, to give us very specific understanding of what it is that the Spirit is saying to the church. You can read the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 through to 25. He was a good prophet who was employed by a bad king to curse Israel. And because he was a good prophet, he wouldn't do that. But he inadvertently gave away to this bad king the way to ruin the people of Israel. It was to seduce them into immorality and idolatry. And, he meant, and the, letter, the Spirit mentions the Nicolaitans because they are a group of people who, um, as it were, taught that faith is about what goes on in the heart rather than what goes on um, in the flesh and in the world. Uh, and so really it's a matter of indifference if you want to worship a few idols and practice a little bit of adultery. You can still have your faith and it can have integrity. And so the Spirit says to the church, well, as a result of living in this place, where the predominant culture is based around these temples and this pagan worship, and where within the church there are these contrary messages, as a result of living in this place, you're compromising the truth, you're conforming to cultural narratives, your spiritual life is in danger. But if you repent... The church is told, I will bring you spiritual food, spiritual life, and destiny. What I want to do this morning is just unpack, as it were, some of the um, deeper um, Nicolaitan myths of our time. The, the things that are there below the surface, that are driving the way our society thinks. But before I do that, I want to make some specific reference to one or two of the um, visible bits of, of Nicolaitan understanding today. You'll be aware that the Church of England has been for several years talking about the whole business of human sexuality. Uh, and what I want to do just for a moment or two by way of introduction is to name five of what I call the Nicolaitan myths that have been propagated around the Church of England. These are the visible bits. The underneath bits we'll get to in a second and they're foundationally and fundamentally important. But you need to hear what it is that's being said um, as it were, evidence of what's going on underneath. And so there are people who are saying um, within the Church of England, within General Synod, elsewhere, well, Jesus' teaching was about love. So how can we deny people the opportunity to express that love 
if they're in a committed relationship. And the biblical response to that, I believe, is to go to how Jesus responded to questions about sexuality and intimacy. And Jesus, when he was asked a question in this area, his instinctive go-to was Genesis. He said, well, haven't you heard? Let's go back to these foundational doctrines of humanity and relationship and sexual intimacy. A second myth, uh, and of course Jesus would say from that, that sexual intimacy is um, a gift to a man and a woman in marriage. That was Jesus' understanding of how that should be played. Uh, a second myth that we hear propagated at the moment is, do you know, it's the quality of relationships that's important rather than who is involved in the relationship. And of course the Bible would say, well, yes, the quality of relationships is important. Uh, and so we have, of course, some of Paul's writings where he talks about relationships within the home. He says, husbands, love your wives. And we may feel that's obvious, but in the context of his time, that was a radical argument about the quality of relationships. But we're doing an injustice to the Bible if we say that the only thing that matters is the quality of relationships. Because the Bible says an awful lot about the shape of relationships. A third Nicolaitan myth that's around at the moment is, well, haven't we moved on from the Old Testament? So how does the Old Testament really have anything to say to 21st century Britain? We, you know, the, the Old Testament forbade football with pig's bladders, read, read Leviticus. The Old Testament forbids us to have mixed fiber clothing. You know, we've moved on from that. And, and of course, there is something in that argument. Because the prayer book tells us very clearly that we are no longer bound by the national laws of Old Testament times. The prayer book says very clearly we are no longer bound by the religious practices of Old Testament times, the cultural expression of them. But the prayer book says very clearly we are bound by the moral law that is taught throughout the whole of Scripture. And in that, there is no dissonance between Old and New Testaments. Fourthly, some people say, well, uh, do you know what? The New Testament writers, particularly Paul, when he's writing about sexuality and the whole business of same-sex sexuality, he, he didn't know anything about the, the faithful same-sex relationships that we see uh, in our own society. Uh, and I have good friends of mine um, who um, are in same-sex relationships, and, and their relationships are faithful. Um, I'm, I'm not going to in any way doubt um, or, or, or question that. Um, but the honest answer to that is, well, that, that's actually wrong. Uh, and if you want an example of that, read the Bishop of Buckingham's book on these matters. Um, he and I have diametrically opposite views on this subject. But he's honest enough to admit that two Roman emperors at least were married to their same-sex partners. The ancient world did know about faithful same-sex relationships. Um, we're not unique um, in that regard. Uh, and then a fifth and a final Nicolaitan argument, a specific one about sexuality in this area, would be, you know, um, if you're made this way, it must be part of God's design. So it's okay. Um, run with it. I think what I need to say to that is, in a fallen world, it's very difficult for any of us to say, this is who I am, this is from God, so it's okay to live this way. If I was being really honest with you this morning, there are plenty of things I think and feel that I cannot in any way sanction just because I feel them. I am a fallen, 
and a broken individual in the same way that we all are. We have to go to outside of ourselves if we want to go to a reliable source of authority. And in a sense, that's what I want to offer you by way of my more substantial contribution this morning. Because I think, as well as being those specific, if you like, Nicolaitan myths, there are some kind of deeper understandings that are driving the way our society and our culture is developing at this time. And I think this letter to the church in Pergamum has much to say to us in 21st century Britain about these deeper and driving um, convictions. And I want to offer you three. The first is in the whole area of hope. Where do we go as a society to find hope? Where can we quarry to find this thing that's called hope what is it that gives us hope how do we find hope as individuals when we face all the vagaries and traumas that life can throw at us is it reasonable even to want to have hope in the ancient world outside of Jewish thinking history was either something that just repeated itself or it was controlled by the gods for their own interest or there was this thing called fate and so if we talked about hope then people would have said well you can have it if you like but it's wishful thinking that's how it would have been interpreted and in a 21st century secularist view um, uh, sorry and into that world into that world where there wasn't really any hope um, the Christian faith brought a world view that tabled an offer of hope you see the Christian worldview was there is someone who designed and made the world and that same person God is interested in and lovingly committed to his world and that same God will one day come back and make all things new and all things good. There's a progress there, a progress that enables us and allows us to have hope. And to some degree, 21st century secularism goes with the idea of hope. It goes with the idea of progression. But it seems to me that we've jettisoned the God bit and instead we're building a narrative of hope that is based on science and technology and political progress. The latter of those is in serious doubt at this particular time. Now, there are many ways, of course, in which that's fair. Because over the years, you know, the advance of medicine is a wonderful thing and we should thank God for it. The abolition of slavery was, was what I would call a good thing in the progress of history. But there are those who are taking a far more arrogant view of where and how we can find hope. So Boris Johnson, if I'm allowed to quote him, and when the government proposed saying the same-sex marriage bill in 2003, he referred to those who had questions or concerns about this bill as Neanderthal. That was his word. If you saw Philip Schofield on morning TV a couple of years ago, he interviewed um, a teacher called jo Joshua Sutcliffe who was facing suspension because this teacher, having Christian convictions, was finding it very difficult to call this young girl, primary school girl, by a male name simply because at one point she felt she'd been um, misgendered and wanted to transition. He was into all kinds of trouble in, 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 in school and in the education system because of it. He was interviewed on TV and at the end of the interview Philip Schofield said to him, well thanks very much for that, let's get back to 2017 and not medieval Britain. And you think, wow. That's a value-laden comment in which he's saying, I believe in the progress of history. We can ditch any understandings that we once had. 
I love the story of the lady who was a member of a church for a long, long time. And um, she was getting on and she wasn't so well. And she called the minister in and said, look, let's be honest. We both know I'm going to die at some point. So let's talk about my funeral. And um, she said, I'd love this, this, and this hymn. And he said, they're great hymns. We'll have them. And she said, I want these Bible readings. Is that okay? And he said, yep, they're great Bible readings. We'll have them. And they went through the whole of the service. And just as he was leaving, she said, oh, there's one more thing. He said, yes, of course, what's that? She said, well, you know how in our church we have the coffin open for people to walk by one last time and say their goodbyes, and then we put the lid on and have the thanksgiving? And he said, yes. And she said, well, can you make sure at that point I've got a fork in my hand? And the minister said, well, I can, but why? And she said, well, you know I've been around here for 50-odd years, and whenever we have our church suppers, whether it's harvest suppers or this kind of supper or that kind of supper, there's a point halfway through the event where someone says, right, if you want to pass your plates down to the end of the table, do so. We've got some pudding coming, so hold on to your forks. She said, you know I've got a sweet tooth. And as far as I'm concerned, the announcement to hold on to your forks because the pudding is coming reminds me the best is yet to come. So when people look at me in my coffin and say, why is she holding a fork? I want you to tell them that's because she knew that the best was yet to come. That's Christian hope. That's Christian hope. And there's, there's rationale, there's reasonableness about that because Jesus was raised from the dead. The first fruits, as Paul describes it. And it's reasonable and it's rationable Rational to think in that way because we believe that one day there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth where our king is going to return and he is going to make all things new. And that's the place, you see, that we find hope. Not in the progress of history, but in the sovereignty of the creator God over history. Not because men, women and children can get better over time, although when we are radically transformed by the indwelling spirit of God, we trust and pray that we will become more Christ-like. No, our hope is because he was raised from the dead and because he is coming back. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there is an opportunity for us at a time when our society is looking for hope to say, folks, you know, I have hope. Let me tell you about the hope that I have. And it's not daft, it's not wishful thinking, it's based on an event in history. Let's puncture that myth, that myth of hope because of the progress of history. Here's a second Nicolaitan core kind of subterranean myth that I want us to think about. It's the myth of what I call freedom. You see, it seems to me that we're living at a time when choice is the sacred value. Um, the one thing you can't do these days is deny somebody something or discriminate to them on the basis of whatever, because choice, their choice, is the sacred value. And again, we'd want to say, if we're being honest, that there's much about freedom in that respect that we'd want to welcome. We do want people to be responsible for themselves. We don't want anyone to be a slave to another. We do believe that choices bring opportunities to flourish. We'd want to say amen to all of those things. But there is a profound difference, it seems to me, between the freedom of 21st century thinking and the freedom that's described in the Bible. Because the freedom that a lot of people reach for today is the removal of constraints. I can do anything I want to so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. 
Whereas the freedom that's offered in the Bible is very different. It's about becoming something. It's not simply tearing things away, removing things. It's the freedom to become. So Paul says to the Romans, creation itself is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Paul says to the Corinthians, okay, you have the right to do anything, but not everything's beneficial. So think about what it is that your freedom is taking you into. You have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So simply removing restraints doesn't get us anywhere. It's about becoming something good. Peter writes, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Uh, I remember there was a Thomas the Tank Engine um, story once um, uh, of Thomas coming off the rails. And as he shot off the rails, he started to shout, I'm free, I'm free at last, I've fallen off the rails and I'm free. Of course, the reality is that he didn't go very far at all once he'd come off the rails. His freedom was to be found within the constraints of the rails. And I think life itself teaches that that has something to say. So, for example, yesterday afternoon I played hockey. I've been playing all my life. I'm getting slower and slower, it has to be said. And the pain last night and the pain this morning, you know, it's, 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 it's a tough life, but someone's got to do it. And, um, you know, I had freedom yesterday on the pitch. I had a stick when I got the ball. I had the freedom to go anywhere I like. But if I'd gone too far up front, my captain would have said to me at halftime, you're meant to be a centre-half, not a centre-forward. What are you doing up there? And when I got to the white lines at the edge of the pitch, if I'd thought, listen, guys, let's not be hung up on rules. They'll just go across the white line to get round this guy, come back on again and score a goal. There's an awkward-looking bloke with a whistle who'd have blown it at me and said, you're over the line. You see, life teaches us that constraints enable freedom rather than the opposite. What about the freedom of the road? I came up the M1 this morning. You know, I suppose I could have driven on the other side of the barrier, couldn't I? It's a free country. But the outcome may not have been pretty. You see, freedom, it seems to me, is not as simple as the removal of constraints. We see this graphically in the story of Luke, in Luke 15 of the, the wonderful loving father. Because the lost son, do you remember, he's the one who ran off with all the money. He thought... He was becoming free. But in fact, his freedom was exposed for its poverty. The older brother, he thought he was trapped by staying at home. But the reason he thought he was trapped is because he never understood what his father said to him, which is, son, everything I have is yours. You've always been free, but you've just never realized it. Folks, we need to recover a biblical view of freedom not the Nicolaitan myth that we've been offered. And then the third one I want to offer to you is around identity. A couple of weeks ago, singer Sam Smith tweeted this. Today's a good day, so here goes. I've decided I'm changing my pronouns to they and them instead of he and him. After a lifetime of being at war with my gender, I've decided to embrace myself for who I am inside and out. Identity is the battleground of our culture. People are arguing about gender. People are arguing about politics, European or not. People are asking the question, uh, do I make myself or is there something about me 
that's given. In the Disney movie Frozen, Elsa sings a song, Let It Go. She's decided not to be the good girl that everyone wants her to be. She wants to allow the badness inside her to be expressed, to be given freedom. And okay, it's just a cartoon film, but it articulates a prevalent way of thinking that freedom is simply about expressing what you feel you are inside. Folks, I want to say the Bible makes some very strong suggestions about identity. The Bible says we're all made in the image of God. We're all created beings. The Bible says that we're all fallen human beings. The Bible says that for any of us who want to, we can be made new in Christ. Those are the defining things about us. Everything else, well, it might be important, but there's nothing else that defines us as much as those fundamental things. The Nicolaitans of today are whispering in people's ears, embrace what you feel, that's your real self. But we need to get back to what the Bible says about identity. We need to embrace God's perspective on who we are in order that we might be at peace with who we are. Let's come into land. Where does this leave us? Well, the good news is, and we saw this at the end of the passage, the good news is that the Spirit says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give a white stone. The white stone were the stones that the juries used to indicate that somebody was not guilty of the charge. It was a pronouncement of freedom, of innocence. The manna, well, that's clearly a reference to the kind of thing that Jesus talks about again and again. His provision for us, his life, his body, his spirit in our hearts. I think this letter says to us, there are plenty of voices out there, plenty of teachings out there that seek to rob you of the freedom and the righteousness and the life that is in Jesus. And as a church, I'd want to pray that you might know how, in an appropriate way, to hold out this better truth, to serve him and to know his continued presence in your heart and in your midst. Amen.